and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Uh, my name is Hussein. I'm recording this from Japan. When this comes out, I will no longer be in Japan. Very sad moment. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I will mention some Japan bits in a second, but... My name is Phoebe. I'm not, I'm not in Japan and I have nothing to contribute on the Japan, on the Japan <laughs> front. <laughs> on the Japan discourse. On the um, Japan front. Uh, and this week we are joined by someone who is also in Japan, who is also in Tokyo, like me, a uh, very good journalist, W. David Marks. He is the author of, uh, and I'm sorry if I pronounce this incorrectly, uh, Amatora, How Japan, How Japan Saved American Style. And more recently, and this is the book we're going to be talking about on this episode, Status and Culture, How Our Desire for Social Rank Creates Taste, Identity, Art, Fashion, and Constant Change. Uh, his work has also appeared in The New Yorker, Lapin's Corsley, Popeye, The New Republic, and Fox. Uh, David, how's it going? How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I, well, we, we met like very briefly uh, before this uh, recording, uh, and uh, you gave us some really good recommendations for going to Japan. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about among this, many, this, this, this great country is the amount of uh, iced coffee that is available. <laughs> I've, been, I've been making it my mission to try every, every convenience store brand uh, coffee before I, before I go. Today, I'm having uh, a UCC Black uh, Fruity Blend. I am not a fan of this one. Um, mm. I wanted to ask, like, well, do, you, like, do you have any thoughts on the amount of tinned ice and iced coffee they have in this country? And do you have a favorite? Yeah, I stopped noticing it being a special thing because it's everywhere. And there's conven convenience stores, obviously, but also vending machines. And there's iced coffee at all times. In the winter, the cans of iced coffee get hot, which I'm not mm. a fan of. I do not like that. So even in winter, I look out for the cold ones. But I like the milkier blends, and then uh, I've been trying to cut down sugar in my diet. So sometimes they'll have a milk coffee that has no sugar added, which I love. And so uh, that's been that's been my favorite for the last year and a half is finding the non-sweetened ice lattes. Yeah, I think so. I'm ha I think this is one of them. But it's so it says like fruity blend, but like I just. I don't know. I, I'm really disappointed by it. I had like one of the red, the, the rainbow boss one yesterday, mm -hmm. um, which was very sweet, but it was really, really good. I like, I really, really liked that. Um, I think I have like two more blends to try before I leave. So uh, I will, I will be putting a review of my favorite uh, tinned coffees. In, they are uh, infinite. There, you, you will not have all of them, <laughs> and you'll need to come back. Uh, but and it's hard to explain. If you're from a place without canned coffees, you would think there's yeah. probably three or four, like the way there are three or four major soda brands. But no, I mean even Boss or Georgia. So Georgia is made by Coca-Cola. That's it's a clever, oh, okay. yeah, clever name. I mean, I think people must. I don't know if they know that Georgia actually has no coffee beans, but it sounds like a place with coffee, right? Mm. So it's a it's an Atlanta reference. But so there's right. Georgia and there's Boss, and then they have their own like twenty to thirty different varieties that just are oh, randomly okay. distributed. That's across interesting. The I didn't know that. Georgia, I didn't know that was a reference to an American place. That's so weird. That's so strange. That's very funny. Yes, and then Boss. The other good uh, trivia is yeah. that the logo of Boss is William Faulkner. Huh. Fuck, really? That's yeah. Funny. It's like a okay, younger so, photo of William Faulkner. I didn't know because like it was just like a guy, like, it was just like a Amer like to me it was like, oh, this is just like a guy with a mustache. Like that must be he's the smoking boss. a pipe too. Yeah, I think so. And I didn't really think much of it. And now when I go to 7 Eleven after this recording, um, I feel like so much of my perspective on this is gonna change a lot. Uh wow, okay. 
all right, I, I, I'm a bit thrown by that. But the reason why I sort of mentioned Japan was, or like re- reference, like to begin with, partly because I'm here, but also because um, when we're talking, because we're going to be talking about your um, the, the book status and culture in a moment. But you wrote a book called um, Amatora, which was about Japanese fashion brands. Uh, and this was based partly on you sort of like being, so from what I understand, like you were sort of doing thesis research here uh, and that kind of like evolved into the book. And I wondered whether you could talk a little bit about how you ended up in Japan and like what made Japanese style, which is something that I think coming here for the first time, it's like the most immediately noticeable thing, just, you know, how well-dressed people are on the subway and like just, just in general um and how like ubiquitous it all is like i wondered whether you could talk to us about how your interest in kind of aesthetics sort of began like how you ended up in japan and maybe how your work in that uh yeah how how your work in that space kind of informed the sort of thinking around uh your latest one status and culture sure so I grew up in the South in the United States uh, and mostly in Pensacola, Florida. Before that, I was in Oxford, Mississippi, which is actually William Faulkner's, um, I guess, hometown, or at least its own entire city kind of dedicated to William Faulkner. But so I grew up in the South and I think fashion was just something that felt extremely far away from me. And we dressed up to go to church or to go to, you know, uh, cotillion or, you know, there's all these occasions in the South where you get dressed up in a Navy blazer and khaki pants, but nobody would have thought that is, uh, I think I should say chino trousers probably for a British audience, but you know, we would never think about that as uh, fashion. And then I, I had an opportunity to go to Japan in high school uh, because Pensacola had a sister city connection with a small town in the mountains. And so I went to that and decided I wanted to study Jap- Japanese. And I think what was interesting to me was that I don't think people had that much experience going to Japan. They didn't know what was going on. And when you got there, it felt like this kind of alternate uh, modernity in the sense that they had TV and they had music and they had all the media pieces that we had in the United States, but there was almost no overlap. Like they had their entire own world. And I was just fascinating with, with what was going on. I couldn't quite explain it. And the logic of commercials was very strange. And there was just all these mysteries and so I started started studying Japanese, and in college, I had an opportunity to do this internship at a publisher in Tokyo. So the summer of 98, I went to Tokyo, and I was into a musician named Cornelius, who was very into Planet of the Apes, and that's where the name Cornelius comes from. And I saw a t-shirt with a face from Planet of the Apes on it, and I didn't know what it was. And I said, I've got to get this t-shirt, and it turned out to be this brand called A Bathing Ape. And I went to the store trying to get into the store and it was the summer was really hot. And there was about a, this, a line of like a hundred kids trying to get into this shop. And uh, it took me three hours to get inside and to get the shirt I wanted. And it was a very expensive shirt. And I just had no exposure whatsoever to this entire culture of waiting in line to buy uh, goods as if it's like a Soviet bread line in the 1940s or something. So um it seemed odd and I didn't know what was going on. And so I kind of ended up making my senior thesis about what was happening with Japan and fashion, but also what was behind the marketing where they were undersupplying goods and hiding stores and making it difficult to buy things. So now that is all kind of part of the marketer toolkit for all of the big brands. But at the time it was something that seemed like it was only going on in Japan. So I, you know, Japan woke me up to the idea of fashion being 
part of a normal person's life in a way that I think in the United States, at least, uh, it was only this very specific urban, almost maybe even only New York kind of thing. And in Tokyo, it seems like every other person had an opinion about fashion or was wearing fashionable clothing, uh, even if that just meant sneakers and and, and t-shirts and, and jeans. So that's where it started from. And then, you know, moving here later, I ended up meeting a lot of the people who really brought American style to uh, Japan in the 1960s. And Amatora was a book that uh, kind of bridged all of that, which is to look at how American style came to Japan in the post-war and then how those uh, brands inspired the next generation who really kept pushing and kept pushing to make more authentic goods. And then by the 1990s and 2000s, we're exporting them back to the US and UK and really uh, you know, creating things that may have originated overseas, but some, suddenly the Japanese versions were more authentic than, than uh, what was being made in the US. So that's what that book was about. And there's a lot of really interesting things going on. And I think most people interested in fashion are interested in it from an artistic design point of view. But for me, it was 100% from the beginning, kind of the soci- sociology of fashion of why mm. do people all buy the same thing at the same time? Or why do they like something at the same time? And why do, uh, you know, why do cultural trends happen at all? And why do aesthetics change and, and flip over the years? Was there any um, was there any tension with uh, kind of the adoption and bringing of Japanese style to uh, to the states after the war with how Japanese people were treated in the states after after the war? Someone asked me that question today too, which is why is it that people in Japan embraced American culture so much? Mm. And the book to read about that is called "Embracing Defeat" by John Dower. And it's a history of post-war Japan. But, you know, the Americans, when they showed up, really thought there was going to be an insurgency against them. And it was very light. And, and people generally tended to accept uh, the, the loss and the fact mm-hmm. that someone someone new was there and they were taking over and they just kind of rolled with it. I think people look at the the reverence for American style in Japan and think, oh, Japanese people love America. And the other thing I try to do with the book is to show then American style and American culture got very separated from America, the nation state. And so you could be against American foreign policy, but also think that wearing jeans uh, was a cool thing to do because all of these things get you know brought into a new culture and they are rooted in that new culture. They mean something new. And so America became this kind of symbolism and a, and a status symbol, really, because Americans were so prosperous that a lot of people in Japan thought, if we live like Americans, we too can get out of this post-war poverty and be uh, more prosperous people. And therefore, we should listen to jazz and and wear American style. And American style was only owned by rich people in Japan. And so all of those things became status symbols. But uh, that does not mean people embraced uh, America and its ideology necessarily. And you know, one of the ironies in the book is there was this huge leftist student movement in Japan in the late 60s, all these kind of Trotskyite Marxist revolutionaries, and you know they were wearing jeans to battle the cops. So they hated America and were fighting against the Vietnam War. But they were wearing jeans like this, you know, the most iconic American garment. Uh, but so were their counterparts in you know in Europe and the U.S. So it, it it's more complicated than just you know a pair of jeans means that somehow you support uh, mm. imperialist U.S. action. What you, uh, uh, David, you sort of mentioned in that explanation uh, something that sort of like brings us actually kind of, kind of like a neatish segue into the next uh, into like your other book, which is about like status and culture and the ways in which like it sort of seemed to be 
that in that transition like different kind of styles represented both like different forms of status like a kind of not a different form of status but like a way of sort of structuring a new system of status um and i wondered whether as a starting point for people who may not be familiar with your work in your book because you've been writing about status like well before the book kind of came out but in terms of how you understood status uh in the book and how you sort of could, could you sort of explain it, like if, what your fra- what your sort of thinking was in terms of developing a framework around it like how does the book kind of see the idea of like status through fashion and art and aesthetics and so on right so i have not been that interested in status as a topic on its own and it's only in trying to decode what i felt like were the secret physics behind cultural change did i keep encountering status and so uh i kept seeing all this you know great theory about cultural and and fashion change that was more or less about uh, people with lower status tend to imitate people with higher status and that's the you know classic model of fashion change that comes from this sociologist gorg zimmel And, and in his age you could have said it's upper class you know, middle class is chasing upper class and the lower class is chasing middle class. But obviously we live in a much more complicated time now and to rehabilitate that model and still use it, you have to replace you know, this idea of class with status. And so in thinking about trying to write a book about how culture works, I thought, well, you got to dedicate some time to defining status and figuring out what it is. And I you know, went to the library thinking I will just get that master book about status that will answer all my questions and then I'll just copy from that. And I sort of discovered there wasn't one. There's there's been a lot of kind of wayward writing about it, especially about 100 years ago and, you know, Max Weber. And there was some strains of sociology in the 50s really focused on status, but uh, there wasn't much. And so I, I started to kind of think I need to make this from scratch in a sense and, and explain how status works and, and figure it out. Mm. And it's what's unhelpful is there's multiple books that have come out recently about status and we all define it differently. And so you can't just kind of read all of them uh, at the same time and, and think we're talking about the same thing. So I want to be really clear about how I define it because the way we use it colloquially is to say uh, that person cares about status. It means that they want to appear to be more important than they are. It's kind of a way of saying they're pretentious and it really focuses on somebody who is middle-class who is trying to sh- show that they are richer than their peers and that's what status is and the meaning that i want everyone to take with the word status especially in the way that the kind of the framework that i created was that status is your position inside of a hierarchy and every group has some sort of hierarchy and so in every group that you're in and that could be your family that could be school that could be work uh, that could be your hobbyist club you have a certain position in that group uh, that is high or low, or it could be middle. And so what's important is there's not only just high status and low status, but there's something we we take for granted, which is a normal status, which is just being a member of good standing with a certain set of rights. And within your group, you have that local status. And then within broader society, there's a global status. And every group that you're in also has a position on kind of a hierarchy of hierarchies. And so uh, there are people in society who have very high status and in their group and outside of their group and all of society. But there's also 
you know, in the United States, it's kind of famous to be the quarterback of your local high school team and have very high status in your high school, but then you do not have high status in the world. But what's important about status is it's not just an abstract position in this group. It comes with a lot of privileges. And, the, you know, the most basic one is that you get esteem from other people and it's nice to have esteem. It makes you feel better. But also you get deference. Uh, you actually get material benefits. And so the more you move up, uh, the more benefits you get and the better your life is. And so there's just a very logical desire within every human being to try to secure the status you have and not go lower, but also to move up and to move up in a way that doesn't necessarily risk the status that you have now. And so if you just take that basic fundamental desire, which psychologists have found is a fundamental desire for all people, and it's different uh, for every person of how much status they want. But if you just look at that status desire and you start kind of making uh, implications based off of that desire, you can start to figure out a lot of social dynamics that lead you to aesthetics and, and class formation and subculture, subcultures and why subcultures have the aesthetics they do, uh, fashion cycles, and also, you know, tradition, history, why things stick around. And so, you know, the book Status and Culture is looking at this very simple principle of human beings want status, they signal for that status with the best assets they have. So depending on their position and the groups that they're in, they're going to signal in different ways. That signaling becomes a form of aesthetics within groups. It becomes a form of taste. Um, and you're judging people based on that taste. And then from there, uh, the conflict between these different groups causes uh, lots of kind of creative things to happen and fashion to change over time. And so uh, from this very simple idea of status, which is a taboo that we don't really love talking about. If you understand it really well, I think you can understand almost 90% or more of the basic principles of how culture operates and how it changes. I think that's like a good, that's a really sort of uh, concise explanation of, uh, of the book. And what I really wanted to like hone in on was a section where you talk about the internet, partly because one of the sort of things that you don't necessarily, like one of the things that you sort of test in that section on uh, internet culture and the ways that it kind of disrupts status is whether the idea of status is necessarily undermined online. Um, and so there are kind of like sections where you talk about this sort of the idea of like the egalitarian internet, the way of like, you know, the idea of like the internet as a kind of be like, and especially like social media platforms, like some of their founding myths are ones on the idea that like rejecting exclusivity, rejecting sort of traditional notions of status, and therefore kind of creating a so-called level playing field. But what you kind of show is actually like, number one, that hasn't really happened. But it then means that we end up having like quite distorted understandings of like status that are very much built on like different signals. And I wondered whether, um, yeah, like in terms of how you were thinking about the internet as a uh, structure in which uh, conventional notions of status were challenged, like whether they whether they did pose like significant challenges. What were you? How how were you sort of thinking about the ways in which digital culture has uh, interacted with like the ways in which status was kind of understood traditionally, and how is it kind of yeah? What 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 are what are the sort of broad effects of it been when we think about ideas of status and hierarchy now? Certainly the internet and status are two things I would not have put together in thinking until very recently. And I've been on the internet since 1993, and it certainly felt like some sort of utopian anti-status place for a very long time. And, I, and again, I think the founding principles of the internet were very much about inclusion and 
expanding access and uh, trying to move away from some of the you know, bad parts of social exclusion that are in real life. Um, something that I think has been on a lot of people's mind in the last 20 years, and it really started for me with the book Retromania by Simon Reynolds, the great music critic, and it was more or less why is culture starting to feel like it's repeating itself and only doing, uh, bringing up old things and not really creating new ones. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about the Big Chill, the film from 1983, that is about all these 1968 hippies becoming yuppies. And it's all about the huge aesthetic differences and value differences of that generation. And if you think about 15 years ago from 2023, you go back to 2008, the top selling artist of 2008 was Taylor Swift. And the best, uh, the um, highest grossing film in the United States was Batman. So, you know, superhero films and Taylor Swift, like has anything changed over the last 15 years? So there's this feeling of cultural stasis. And the reason I kind of got to thinking about status and the internet again, is because I, th I started seeing that the something was messed up with fashion cycles. The fashion cycles weren't happening. They weren't as deep. Um, and uh, things were retro, but not really going away. And uh, so the cultural refresh that we had, I think in the 80s and 90s, that we weren't feeling as much. And it took me a while to kind of get there, but it, start, it started to notice that it had something to do with the status value of the culture being created. And again, we don't think of coolness like that's a cool thing. We, I mean, it's it's kind of famously hard to define what we mean by it being cool. But coolness is a form of status value in that it has associations with a somewhat of an exclusive group, and maybe that's outsiders and rebels. But it has um, some mystique to it with associations of that group, and it's not something that everyone has. It has to be uh, somewhat rare. And so coolness, things that are cool are, are kind of status symbols. They're status symbols of a certain kind. And things are not as cool anymore as I kind of talk about in the book and found out because the structures of the internet, just as the medium that it is, do not lend itself well to the creation of the status value. And we can talk about this because this is kind of a complicated thing to understand, but it's just that inherently the internet is flattening lots of mm. barriers that used to be put up to create things that only certain groups had or only certain groups were allowed to do. And, and when it was, uh, when those, let's say a style, a clothing style or a kind of t-shirt or a kind of uh, uh, shoes, if they're associated with this group and only that group can access it, it became very deeply associated with that group and it took on this kind of authenticity and a coolness. And now with the internet and everything being leveled and anyone can buy anything at any time, anyone can know anything at any time, a lot of these barriers of uh, ways that status symbols were taking value outside of money have been destroyed. And now everything is uh, about money because money is still the the one barrier that, that the internet doesn't change. And that just makes culture a little less interesting when it's all about money, but it also just disrupts the kind of uh, alternative or indie or whatever you want to call it, that that coolness that really powered culture through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There's a crisis there. And I think uh, not having that kind of vanguard group create new things that trickle down has really made the whole culture mm -hmm. suffer. Interesting. Yeah, I like there's there's um there's like a section of the book where you sort of talk about uh well like from what I like 
and again, like I don't know whether I sort of got this concisely, but there's a section about um influence like where you sort of talk about influences and the ways in which like they show flashiness and it kind of really i think that really touched on the idea that like well the only sort of different like money is kind of like really the only way or seems to be like one of the main ways in which like to differentiate yourself and i wondered whether you had any thoughts on the ways in which like people how people differentiate themselves online and how we kind of get from a place where like you know this sort of um not to romanticize the internet too much but where you get from a place where like um differentiating yourself even on platforms uh becomes like harder and harder to do we're able to sort of like maybe start kind of you know you you sort of go from like being able to build your own websites to then having you know being able to optimize your own social media pages to then kind of transitioning to like your facebook's and twitter's where the whole kind of point was that you wouldn't be able to do that and now it sort of feels like we're in a situation where differentiating yourself on these very sort of uniform platforms that require us to kind of behave in certain ways and even talk in like the same ways the, the only way to really differentiate yourself is by kind of using money to almost sort of alter the aesthetics of that. And I wondered whether that was like the point that you were sort of getting at um, and like what the implications have, like what, what are the implications of that been for the ways in which like fashion trend, like, yeah, like how fashion trends have sort of circulated. And is it, I don't know, like, is it, is it kind of harder now for someone to really be able to sort of like be able to aesthetically experiment if they don't kind of come from a wealthy background or like a wealthy part of the world? So there's a lot, lot there to unpack. And, and one thing about the internet and, and participation on social media is that you literally have to put yourself out there. And one of the things about culture is that the best status symbols, the ones with the most value are always what is called behavioral residue, which means that you're not brandishing something to show off to other people you are simply uh have something on you or you know a style or a way of life that reflects your actual lifestyle and so you know an accent or uh yes they wear this kind of hunting jacket because they actually go hunting and the thing about that is that if you just live and walk down the street people can see that and they can read you but the thing about the internet is that there's no simply walking down the street and being noticed. You have to, you know, basically uh, show yourself in order to participate at all. And the signaling becomes much more intentional and it becomes much more, uh, I would say, devalued because it seems like at all times people are trying to show off. And so we discount it in our heads a little bit. So, you know, that's one one problem that's happening already. There's also the fact that when I was growing up, in the 1990s in the United States, especially in a small town, there were things that only the cool people knew about, um, and especially with music. And the concrete example I know is I saw uh, the band Teenage Fan Club, a Scottish group on television. I asked my friend's older brother to give me the CD, which he gave me. And then he said, wait a minute, do you know Dinosaur <laughs> Jr., another very cool indie band? And I said... No, I do not know Dinosaur Jr. And, he, and you know, this one of these cinematic moments hands it to me is like, this is for you. And I went back and listened to it and thought it was absolutely terrible about the first four times I heard it. And then I <laughs> then I loved it because uh, I went to school the next day and told some, an, a, uh, a girl who was a year older than me, uh, I've got the Dinosaur Jr. Uh, uh, CD. And she was like, no way. Can you please copy it for me? And suddenly I was very cool uh, at school. So. 
things like that happen. But you know, now it's just very unlikely that those kind of information gaps exist and the coolness existed yeah. in mm. the gaps. And now you can become a, a expert on anything at any time. But more importantly, we all know that all of us can become experts on anything at any mm. time. And you know, if you meet someone who is gushing about natural wine, it is hard to tell whether they've been interested in natural wine for 10 years or literally 20 minutes before you met them and they just read a bunch of Wikipedia pages. And so we know that. And so information itself is being discounted. And there also used to be uh, access to goods was a thing that it was hard. So, you know, Dinosaur Jr., it's not just that you need to know about the band, but in a small town, you had to have a record store that sold it, which I don't think, you know, we had many in Pensacola that did. Uh, and I, I was thinking about my sister was at Cambridge a bit for grad school and she was on the rowing team and she got the mint blue Cambridge rowing t-shirt uh, that has Beefeater on the front from, I think, her boyfriend. And she gave it to me and I had this shirt, which is not for sale. Uh, and it was very cool to walk around saying, I have this Cambridge shirt that, uh, uh, that is not for sale. At the same time, I was walking around and the actual Cambridge rowing team saw me and I felt like I was about to get jumped <laughs> and beat up because I most definitely should not have had that shirt or been wearing it. But, you know, this kind of, this, this kind of t-shirt that is only available to a certain amount of people is almost, that also has just disappeared with the internet. and. Yeah. Uh, the example I give in the book is there was a New York Times article about a Pakistani sneaker brand, uh, Cheetah, uh, these Cheetah high tops. They're very big oh, with, yeah. um, with the Taliban. And then I instantly heard this GQ podcast where the editors were talking about, we got to get the Taliban sneakers. And they were going around trying to find the Taliban sneakers and they couldn't get them like the week of. They could not get these Pakistani sneakers. But then about three months later, I looked online and there was all these e-commerce companies from Pakistan, like, you know, we'll ship you the cheetah sneakers, at, you know, at any time. And so we really do live in a world where everything is available. And so, you know, the Bathing Ape t-shirt I had uh, that I bought in 1998, that was so valuable in the United States because you couldn't buy it, you know, that now you just can go on to any of these sites and buy anything. And so these barriers that aren't money were very interesting for making, for adding value to culture. And now they're gone. And so, yes, money is just the, the easiest one to understand. But then also, you know, Instagram and these sites have created this whole striver culture of people trying to show that they're able to convert their popularity in terms of, and it's a very kind of um, numerical popularity, right? This many followers, they can convert that to brands that pay them. And then they can take that money and show off that, look, I bought my parents uh, Mercedes Benz, thanks to my drop shipping empire or whatever it is. And they're showing it off. And that sense of detachment or not bragging about things, I think that is also gone away. And so you just have this kind of culture of people not really being able to signal through anything other than money, that money is the currency, is the literal currency of showing that they're important. And then uh, this whole visual medium that makes it great to show off all the you know vacations and private jets and, and everything that's uh, comes to you when you are very successful. And obviously, you want to show that you're successful because the whole talent of being an influencer itself is being famous for being famous. And, and that's not a put down. I mean, that's literally what it is. And so uh, all of this just kind of compounds. And then one other fact I talk about in the book is we do live in a world that is more globalized and there are more cultures coming 
online for the first time that have not had a voice and have not uh, been able to participate in global culture in all these different places. And now the people from those, uh, let's say, former third world or former developing economies that do participate tend to be uh, from extractive economies or um, corrupt authoritarian families or, or whatever it is. And so you get a lot of uh, flash and nouveau riche from around the world kind of also coming up on these platforms. And that also is emphasizing the the new moneyness. And so the, there's just all these factors all pushing towards a kind of culture based around money. And it, it's not that everything is like that, but certainly uh, compared to the 90s, and I don't want to make the 90s a golden era, but um, compared to when I was growing up and there was just so much culture, much more based off being in the know, it's now certainly about you know, be mm. in the money. Um, I, I, the last mm. thing, the last thing you said was actually something that I was going to that I was going to kind of offer up about how, uh, as uh, as kind as goods as kind of goods that are kind of associated with being kind of cultural goods have got cheaper. That of course gets inflected by uh, by extractive supply chains. Like so, if you're getting, if you're you know, if you're ordering, if you're if you're ordering through kind of AliExpress some Taliban sneakers, like that is. Like that is a different direction of travel in terms of extractivism, and in terms of um, really kind of sort of vil- sort of villainous, uh, villainous supply chains, both for both for the people at the sharp end of them, and also obviously for the for the planet as well. But I just like there's so many interesting things that um, that sort of came up sort of as you were, um, so as as you were talking. And like the first one I think is the idea of um, of how being online, uh, because it's this kind of abstracted community, uh, like w- wherever it is that you're posting, whether it's a, whether it's a, whether it's a kind of sort of re sort of rejigged forum, which like to, to, as far as I, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, uh, Discord is like an attempt to kind of reimagine and rejig forum culture, uh, and it's certainly the closest that that it's got to it. Whether you're on Twitter, whether you're on Instagram, whether you're on TikTok. Um, the only way of being visible to this abstracted community is by making yourself visible. And I think this is a point which um, comes up in uh, Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror about how you have to say mm-hmm. what it is you're doing. And mm-hmm. I do think that there is a kind of uh, sort of built-in self-destructo button in that because as soon as you're saying the cool stuff you're doing and the cool stuff you're buying and the cool stuff you listen to and whatever – then that automatically makes it uncool because the only reason you're doing it is because you want other people to think you're cool and the only and there's nothing less cool than wanting other people to think you're cool um mm-hmm. and that and that has been and that's been the and that's been the case you know sort of since time immemorial since before since certainly since certainly before uh before the internet but there's another kind of interesting idea which is like people at the moment, certainly, and I don't know what this. I don't know if this is the if this is a sort of similar thing happening in um, happening in the states, or whether there is a kind of real difference, uh, kind of across urban areas, rural areas, r- rural areas, and so on. But U- the UK is uh, is much more of much more, I suppose, of a not a, not an economic monoculture, but a kind of taste monoculture. So you see people mm-hmm. trying to slap a kind of pattern of in the knownness and esotericness on the stuff that they like in order to 
in order to kind of turn it into something that is like a kind of imitation of pre-internet cool. So so there's a certain sort of so there's a certain sort of like certain sort of kind of music subcultures, for example, which if you want to go and hear this kind of music, you 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 go on Resident Advisor or whatever, and then you find a night that plays this kind of music, or you find or like you find a or you find like a set by a by a musician or a DJ that you like on on YouTube. It's it's so it's so so straightforward to do, but the people who are into it can't bear that that's straightforward to do. So they come up with different ways of pretending that it's that it's not kind of available to anyone that it's not available to just anyone who downloads an app so there are places where if you book a ticket that doesn't necessarily mean you'll get in because you're kind of your um uh because you are then um just like subject to the to the kind of the slightly arbitrary thoughts and feelings of of the door staff that day there are uh, like limited edition vinyls and limited edition clothes. There are clothes that don't go above certain sizes. There are uh, there are bags that you have to be judged by the store whether or not you are allowed this bag. And this is about money as well, but it's also about trying to kind of to reinject uh, cultural exclusivity into into a context where even though anyone can know about anything because of the proliferation of information and the only barrier that's standing between you and uh, and kind of culturally coded possessions is whether or not you have the money to buy them. But because mm-hmm. of the sheer proliferation of it all, you can't listen to everything that's out. There's so much music, there's so many films, there's so many TV shows. And so the so really your only option if you want to kind of maintain any sense of exclusivity is to make an effort to find forgotten older stuff and then that's mm-hmm. your thing because of the kind of the subcultural flattening of this sheer proliferation and this sheer availability in the like again in the in the global north this sheer availability and this this kind of sheer sort of just kind of just just sort of quantity which ha- which has led to um a kind of, I think, a significant aesthetic flattening. I think, I think, I definitely think that has happened. Right, and and the strange thing is, we were promised the mm. opposite, which is the internet was supposed <laughs> to be the long tail is wonderful. So everybody, until now, has constructed their identities out of this basic Crayola set of eight crayons, and we're going to give you sixty four, one twenty eight, and someone's going to be burnt sienna rather than just brown. And they're going to be able to, you know, expand out and uh, create these new identities that no one's ever seen before because the internet provides so much more diversity. And the problem that we didn't quite get was that the value of the things that are in front of us aren't just quality and aren't just distribution, like there are eight things. But it's that when you have eight things, everybody knows what the eight things are and what they mean. And so when you play with them, and you're trying to uh, explain your identity to somebody and say, um, I like hip hop. The other person knows what hip hop mm-hmm. is. The problem when you get to an infinite number of cultural signifiers is that they all lose value if the other audience doesn't know how to read any of them. So what happened was we destroyed that kind of middle group of in the no signifiers with you know, a fire hose of signifiers, all of which are valueless and meaningless. 
And so people had to go back to, if it's a long tail, then the head, because the head is all this culture that people actually know. And so you can listen on the side to some obscure local you know, band that you know and no one else knows. But if you want to talk music to somebody, it's much more uh, likely that you should talk about Taylor Swift, because if you have an opinion about Taylor Swift, you actually can have a conversation about it. And so the fundamental problem is we have all of these things we can use in our identities now, but they're all valueless. And so we're not necessarily putting them in our identity. And so identities themselves are becoming much more uh, homogenized, which was what we were told would mm-hmm. not happen. Uh, and it has made things very boring uh, and flattened, as you said. And it was interesting, you, you talked about, okay, well, you can go back to find an obscure old thing. And you know what? what is the thing that is interesting about retro? Like, why does retro happen? Because retro is a form of novelty, but a, a pre-existing, pre-known form of novelty. So you don't have to convince anybody, hey, this is new for 2023, uh, and I have to start from scratch to explain what it is, because someone said, oh, yes, I remember that from 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh semi-charmed life was for some reason like kids were talking about semi-charmed life uh by third eye blind like a year ago it's like a really cool song so if you're you're gonna make semi-charmed life your you know pick from the past that's only me uh you don't have to explain to people what it is because they've heard it in you know before and so retro is kind of uh it's like hedged novelty Mm. in the sense that people know what it is and that's also not that interesting if everybody's going back to you know, retro things because they are scared to do new things. But the ultimate, you know, as the value shifts away from all this diverse novelty that we have that's made in real time, it does make people more conservative about the choices that they make uh, because they're going to stick to the thing they did before because it felt authentic. And, you know, we're one of the things we have never considered before is that fashion only works if there is a lag in the diffusion. And the, and that's a complicated way of saying that there are, let's say, cool people who do a new trend, and then it trickles down to the next group. And, and it used to be that trickle down would take years because the number one, people had to know about it, you had to be in the know. The second is that co- other cheaper companies would come in to make cheaper products, you know, basically make copies of it, that would take years. Uh, and this whole process of having that next group do something would take so long that mm. it really did become an authentic part of the uh, initial adopters' mm. lives. So if they're saying, we're dark denim people, they had a good four or five years to be dark denim people where it felt authentic. Mm. So now you go to the internet world where they do something and it's literally like photos of cool people doing things are instantly online. Everyone can see them. Everyone's talking about it. Companies are jumping in and making copies of those things instantly and putting them on sale and so anyone can can uh copy these trends but also everyone knows that that anyone can copy it and so therefore when you see something new you kind of think well that's going to be a fad and disappear quickly so i won't do it at all and so Mm -hmm. in the past if something popped up you would actually participate in it everyone would participate in it eventually and then you would get these whole kind of uh, zeitgeist defining trends and now we're at a point where you know, everyone's a little bit coy about, well, I'm not going to do that because that's probably a fad. I'm going to disappear. So then they don't do it at all. And then we just wear the same thing over and over again for 15 years yeah. straight. It's, it's so it's so interesting as well, because obviously like, when I was a teenager um, and 
older people said, yeah, but the thing is, is that all this stuff comes back around. All this stuff comes back around. And, you know, and like, and my, like my mom was always talking about how, like how much she regretted, uh, giving giving away her stock of uh Bieber dresses um which has now been um which has now been kind of reimagined as a kind of high fashion brand and I don't know how much her her frocks from the from the 60s would have would be worth now but I suspect it is an awful lot but it never occurred to me when I was 15 that my um that my limited edition buffalo boots would also have a kind of would have a similar mm-hmm. effect in the future and something that i've noticed now because like, i'm not interested in influencing and influencers um it's all just advertising it's not something which which is of value or interest to me um to me and my life but something that i've noticed whenever i see particularly an influencer who is in um who is in a sort of slightly um, curious hinterland phase. So I'm talking particularly about women's fashion, or I, su- I suspect it might be slightly different in the menswear sphere. But this, this, the influence between the ages of sort of 26 and 31, um, who aren't appealing to younger people, and they're not appealing to uh, people who really have kind of mainly kind of migrated to TikTok. Uh, whenever a kind of twenty-seven-year-old is like, okay, so I've got a TikTok and I'm making TikToks, and uh, I don't, I don't like, I don't like it there. The teenagers are mean. Um, like, I know I can't recreate the glory days of Instagram, but people could, if you could just, if you could just engage with my limp, with my kind of limp. Um, kind of uncreative, <laughs> uninventive content on Instagram, so that I can go to brands and say, "Look at all my followers and look at all my engagement." Can you just please just do that for me? Just do me a solid because I don't want to get a different job that's actually hard. Please, can you just do that for me? That would be lovely. Um, and then you see what these young women are wearing because they're they're not appealing to the nineteen year olds that they need to appeal to, but they're also not quite ready to get onto the next stage of influencing, which is. Uh, family-based stuff, weddings, interior design, so on and so forth. So they're kind of stuck in this kind of a, I have nothing to do other than buy clothes that anyone can buy, um, use my not necessarily especially kind of unique or creative eye to put them together, take a picture of myself in these clothes. And then I'm looking at these clothes and being like, you could buy this exact outfit from Camden Market in 2001 why the hell am i seeing this why am i seeing again the 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 mesh tops with the kind of the frilled edges that kind of that you kind of sort of pinch between between your between your boobs and they kind of have a sort of handkerchief thing with floor length denim skirts like why am i seeing that again it looked terrible it looked <laughs> terrible in 2001 it looks terrible now um and i and just absolute, just so interesting to kind of really, really experience the kind of the sharp end of previous uh, youthful narcissism and thinking, oh, well, that's never going to happen to us because this is, we've, we've finished it. This is the be all and end all. We've, 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 we've finished this, we've finished this stuff. Um, and it feels very strange to see somebody who is 10 years younger than me, um, wearing something that I wore as a teenager or that people, certainly people I knew um, wore as a teenager and how, how uninterested it all seems to be in 
in subculture. So people who you wouldn't necessarily think of as being a particular like metalhead are all listening to that, all listening to that new uh, that new Wednesday album, all listening to that new Giller Band album. And I know that I know that's not metal. I'm aware that that's not metal. I do you know the difference between metal and post punk? Thank you. Um, but it's it's so strange that this kind of particularly interesting to sort of mention Taylor Swift as an example because I think that the sort of re reconfiguring of Taylor Swift as um as a kind of across the board serious musician that you don't have to be a country fan you don't have to be a pop fan to really really be in to Taylor Swift and that I think kicked off the whole poptimism movement both in both in kind of subcultural uh, feeling and also in criticism and in kind of and in kind of cultural cultural writing and cultural engagement uh, and the initial point of it was to uh, was I think to re uh, to kind of reestablish that there was an entire sector of music and cultural consumers, i.e., young women and girls, who were being mm-hmm. treated as if the stuff that they liked had no value just because it's what they liked. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that was the kind of the point of poptimism. But all it's meant now is that everything has just become very drab and we're pretending that very mediocre pop albums and pop performers are much better than they are also because everyone is frightened of of, of fandoms which is probably fair enough because some of them are insane um <laughs> right but it hasn't led to uh say like the kind of your, your like your average young person um again i think the third eye blind uh uh Example is a really good one because the reason that Semi Charmed Life kind of re-emerged as like a kind of as like a fun song is because somebody used it on a TikTok and that and the TikTok went viral and mm-hmm. that's not the same thing at all as um as like uh, as as a young person being like okay well you know what I would like I would like to have another look at the kind of the really like the the upbeat guitar indie pop of the nineties which I don't necessarily associate with say Britpop. I don't associate with um I don't associate with grunge. It's something else. It's something different. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna find it and I'm gonna listen to it. Uh and it's so interesting, I think, that with greater proliferation, greater availability, anyone with the money and a bit of time can basically get their hands on anything but it also means that you can't really get your hat get your hands on anything like simultaneously it has this weird it has this weird kind of almost schrodingery effect uh because so much of music now as well and i know i keep focusing on music but that's sort of what i've been thinking about a bit recently um is mediated by what is available on streaming services. So if it's not available on a streaming service and it's not being recommended to you based on the other stuff that you're listening to through a sort of quite opaque algorithm, then you are not finding out about it unless you do sort of something quite kind of, um, quite kind of casting a wide net. So you know that there's so you know that there's one thing that you like because you saw it on TikTok. So you look so you look them up on say you look them up on Wikipedia just as an example because I don't think all music is properly being 
um, is properly being updated anymore. Uh, and then you go down and you have a look at the um, you have a look at the list of associated artists and influences and so on. And you go, okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll try one of these, more or less, uh, sort of more or less on 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 spec. And then you go on Spotify, say, and it's not there. So you go on YouTube and it's sort of there a bit, but you can't find a kind of good version of it. So your other options are to buy a physical copy of it, which is expensive. Not everything exists in physical copies. And also young people don't have anything to play physical copies on in the main. Um, I'm always astonished by how few people have the capacity to play either a C- CD or a DVD. Um, Although there's a lot of people who own vinyl records and then don't own a turntable. Yeah, exactly. I, in fact, that I, in fact, because uh, when my part when my partner and I moved in together, um, there wasn't room to put his record player, so he sold it. But we still have these records, and I'm just like, should, should we? No, no, <laughs> I guess. And people still give us records as presents, and I'm like, I have, I have no capacity uh, to do anything with uh, to do anything with them. So it so it involves. So so much actually more effort than being fifteen in like in the year two thousand and someone saying, "Have you heard Dinosaur Junior? Here's a CD." Which is interesting because again, like you were like you were saying, David, we were promised the opposite. Yeah, I, I remember this exact moment where I was at a bar, met two people, and we were and we all kind of liked similar music. And then we went around in a circle. It's like, what are you listening to? And it was just this non sequitur list of proper nouns that made no sense to the other people. Just like we could just be making things up. I mean, it. I don't remember any of those bands. I probably never heard them again. Um, and it just this feeling of total disconnection. And the whole reason, uh, you know, in the 90s when you're young, you think, well, I like this music because I like this music. But so much of it also was this kind of ambient value that it had mm. that you could talk to somebody cool that and that had probably shared some other values that you had who also liked it and that would be the thing that got you uh into that friendship and so you know if you're listening to all this music that doesn't help you at all build any social bonds mm. it really loses its value uh, going back to the thing you said about poptimism you know i do believe poptimism started with a really noble cause oh, yeah, and as you said you know to to bring up these new kinds of fandom, but also just there was this insane bias in music criticism that said, well, if things are made by white rock bands, they're really important. And then everything else is very musically, you know, not important at a time in which the strokes are just, you know, recycling all these cliches, maybe doing it well, but it's, there's not a lot new there where Missy Elliott is doing all this incredible production uh, that's very subtle and and changing the nature of hip hop. So that correction was, I think, really important. And it was worth saying there is pop music that is made to be commercial that has a lot of artistry mm. in it. But now it, we got to this next stage that I call ultra poptimism, which is things are good. They have value because they are popular, which is not something that pop, poptimism was saying. Poptimism was saying it just because something is popular doesn't mean it's bad. But the next leap of logic is to say, okay, this is the most popular thing and it must be the best because it makes the most people happy. Mm. And so once you kind of adopt that logic, then 
you really don't have a room to value uh, music that may not be popular, but is artistically interesting. Mm-hmm. That I think there has been this sense of, um, and I've written a little bit about, you know, there's different ways to appreciate culture. And some people appreciate it just because, you know, um, this this is like a, a party anthem and it's great. It's being in a club and it's, you know, boom, it's great. It feels good. And then some people really care about the syntax of the music and interesting things going on there. Um, and there was a snobbery for a long time that, you know, the physical sensation of a, a big movie or a great anth- anthemic song, that's not as important as this uh, artistry that is, exists only if you're an expert in music. And I, that was wrong, too. But I think that that's also flipped to say the artistry is all pretension. All that matters is, you know, can you dance to it or not? Mm. And so there's kind of been a flip the other way where people who... Um, are very interested in a very specific, basic, universal way of appreciating culture, have a kind of inverted snobbery against people who may like, who may want to hear innovation in new forms. Mm. And the whole thing is, it's really important for the entire ecosystem to have all of it. There will always be music made for dancing, always be music made to be commercial, um, made for 14-year-old girls, that's fine. Um, But that music, it's very stale unless it takes ideas from the most innovative avant-garde music made by people who are not trying to sell a lot of records, mm. made by people who are interested in music for its own sake. And that you can say that for fashion and for anything. There's there's going to be a group of people who are totally unmotivated by uh, commercial interest. And in fact, the commercial interests get in the way of them being motiv- uh, innovative. Mm. And so if we want to support them, and we're not doing it by giving them our dollars, or pounds. And we're not doing that by giving them status for being cooler than the rest of us. And we're actually telling them you're pretentious for trying to be innovative. What exactly is the motivation for them to do things? And what is the pathway in which the innovations they create become uh, interesting and well-known and take on value? So if if we're completely dismantling the system in order to just um, pick the winners and say, things that are the biggest are the best, and everything that's not big is a failure, which the internet also kind of points to because you have these view counts on videos, right? Mm. So this video mm. is very good, but it only has 500 views, so it couldn't be that good. If it was better, it would have more views. So if we have this whole system that's just pointing towards bigness, why exactly would anyone be motivated to say, I'm going to not go for bigness and then go for strangeness or go for innovation? Uh, and the old system, as many flaws as it had, it did create those innovations that then refreshed the entire system. Mm. So I'm not here advocating for weirdness for weirdness sake. I'm saying that even the mass culture stuff needs to get some ingredients from the edges and the margins that are going to make it interesting. And you've got to have some mechanism to, to reward people in the margins for making weird things. Yeah. And I know I, mm. I agree with everything. I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, <coughs> sorry. I'm just a little conscious about uh, time. But I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask uh, David like you present uh, something that you had said uh, uh, about I think it was in relation to optimism, but it was also just kind of it, it feeds into like a broader thing that you write about in the chapter and across the book as well about um, cultural consumption and like what uh, the the incentives that or like the stru- how the internet is structured and uh, or the ways in which the internet is structured for us to sort of consume. Uh, uh, cultural output for lack of a better term and there's a framework that you develop uh called the um it, it, it's called the omnivore taste uh i think is uh i think is the reference that you use 
Um, and I wondered whether you could elaborate on what you meant by, uh, le- uh, yeah, what you meant by that, and just like the ways in which, uh, like what the material effects of like the kind of omnivore approach to cultural consumption is. Because I think like one of the points that you make is that like one of the consequences of uh, being an omnivore online is that like you are not only like the that sort of um, the incentive to like not differentiate kind of means that you are then left in this uh, again this own sense of like stasis where you're not actually sure like what you like or what you dislike and then that kind of feeds into making it making it a lot more difficult to build communities around those types of tastes and as a result it might kind of uh, contribute to this kind of broader feeling that I think lots of us tend to have where we sort of have access to so much culture be it like music films and so like fashion and so on but can all that this whole process can feel like incredibly lonely and I wondered whether you could whether number one I will I I'm interpreting that correctly but also whether you could elaborate a bit on like what uh yeah what that sort of omnivore cultural consumption is and whether we should really be pushing back on that and the ways in which we could potentially do that so omnivore taste is a term from sociology, and if you go back to not so long ago, there was this real idea of high, cu- high culture, middle brow, low culture, and cultural critics more or less thought their job was to find high culture and to promote it and to, uh, you know, denigrate middle brow culture and most definitely low, low brow culture. And at some point, when you start realizing, you know, I think the work of Pierre Bourdieu, the sociologist, was very influential in making people realize these distinctions are quite artificial and they're quite class-based. And so once you start realizing that and deconstructing it, the snobbery of saying, I'm only going to value things of extreme sophistication um, starts seeming almost bigoted. And therefore, kind of omnivore taste came out of this idea of there is great value in uh, not just haute cuisine, but also, you know, all this variety of ethnic foods and uh, not just in uh, very complicated avant-garde music, but also pop songs and all of that. And so from the, you know, 80s and 90s, people in the creative class, upper middle class, professional segment started to expand their taste out of just trying to focus on middle brown high and really trying to do everything. And and some of that's inevitable and it's for the best, right? So having omnivore taste simply means you are not judging your culture as superior to other cultures. You're trying Mm -hmm. to say there's value in all these different cultures and we should experience it. And it's wonderful to have omnivore taste because Mm -hmm. you can experience so much and you can get the most out of life and culture. So that's wonderful. The downside of it, which I don't don't know how to prevent, but the, the downside is... What you're doing is you're taking all these gradations in culture. So there used to be, let's say, a punk community and then a, uh, you know, let's say heavy metal community and a punk community. And the people who were in the punk community did not listen to heavy metal and the heavy metal people did not listen to punk. And some of that is exaggerated, but more or less you have these two microcosms that are antagonistic and, and literally doing things to separate from each other. By doing that, you create these really rich cultural worlds that are separated from each other. And by lumping everything together, you lose some of that cultural value and authenticity because everyone's just kind of in the same group. And so now what you have is more or less a group of people who are cosmopolitan, omnivore taste people, and people who are non or even anti-cosmopolitan who really do believe that their culture is the best culture and all other cultures are terrible. And if you look at the United States and, and you know we call it a culture war, it maps pretty well 
that there is a group that is cosmopolitan uh, or projected to be cosmopolitan and diverse, and then there's a group that is inherently and uh, virulently anti-cosmopolitan and literally doing things just to make the other side mad um, among the, the right wing. And so you get now this kind of very, very boring cultural situation where it's kind of everyone's in that is cultural is in one group and they're just battling this anti-cultural group instead of all of the small internal struggles that used to be very, very creative for the culture. And so I don't know what the solution to that is because again, omnivorism is a virtuous thing and good. And, and mm. it, it was inevitable that it happened the more that we understood the way culture works, but it's certainly, we, you know, getting back to rivalries between genres uh, that really did inspire those genres to be different from each other and to have rivalries between subcultures. The reason skinheads looked at the way that they did is because they were anti-hippie, but they also needed to look anti the previous generation of mods. So when these groups want to uh, be in opposition to another group, they're going to, d- to create all these very distinctive things that make our culture richer in the long run. Uh, and so by everyone kind of being in this big mush of everything is good, you just get a lot less distinctiveness. Mm. And so we, we lost that. And so I don't have a solution for it, unfortunately. But, um, you know, so it, we, certainly it's just hard to go back to a time where you're saying, I only listen to Deep House and I will not listen yeah. to, uh, you know, anything else other than that. I just can't imagine why people would, once they've made the mental break and they have the you know, parts of their brain that can value all these different kinds of music, why would you stop listening to different kinds of music? Great. Mm. It's a great question. So I think what you're saying is we should smash the servers. I feel like that's the, <laughs> I feel like that is yet again. <laughs> ah, we keep yet again, the, the, same, conclusion. the same conclusion. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I didn't, I, like, I want to clarify, I didn't sort of mean, but like, oh, we sort of need to kind of go back into silos or like, we should go back into... I think we should uh, go like, back into silos. There's nothing wrong okay, with well, cultural that, silos. That's, that's, that's a sort of different, <laughs> different, differentiator. But I think like it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, which is like, well, what if money sort of becomes a differentiator? That's kind of... And, and I think that's it. It's very much like, well, I don't think omnivore taste, so like in the way that you sort of set it out, is like a bad thing. Um, but I think what I think where it's sort of kind of mediated by platforms and those platforms, like their objective is like primarily to kind of make money and to sort of do that through um like data extract like you know different forms of extraction but primarily data extraction that's kind of where i feel that the problem sort of lies which is so number one yeah absolutely like destroy like uh yeah like destroy the servers but it might kind of mean uh, in my mind it might sort of mean that like it needs you know there needs to be kind of you know human intervention so to speak in terms of okay, well, being aware that these algorithms kind of exist and they sort of like exist to kind of, uh, you know, they don't don't necessarily kind of incentivize you to really kind of, to actually sort of like be kind of true to the virtues of being an omnivore, then you kind of need to do that yourself, so to speak. Like you sort of need to search out things for yourself. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that and whether it's really just the case that like in some ways in order to kind of, not necessarily even uh, make culture better, because I think, again, that's like a very big subject and not one that like is necessarily fair to sort of talk about on the show. But like, do, in your mind, does it sort of require, um, it does, does, does this sort of require us to kind of really step outside of our own kind of like algorithmic bubbles and 
kind of search out new kind of cultural trends, tastes, and so on. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, look, um, again, the way I think about all this is it's an ecosystem full of lots of different kinds of people doing different things. And the truth is that there are passive consumers. There's lots of passive consumers and most consumers are passive. And so if you're going to listen just to what the algorithm gives you and you're happy with that, then you're happy with that and it doesn't change anything. I think it's the same with, I'm convinced that in the 90s, a lot of people listened to very difficult music and did not actually want to, but felt a social pressure that they had to. And so Mm. I guess I will listen to this music that is miserable uh, I was listening to Oval recently, which is like literally, it's literally like CD skipping uh, music over and over again. And, and like, I I can take something from it, but I just can't imagine somebody feeling like I have to listen to Oval and I'm going to listen to a CD skip for 45 minutes. But um Oh, was, that, was, was that the album going... that, he, uh, that he he released earlier on? The, 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 like, the ultra kind of like glitch one? I mean, there's so there's at least two or three ultra glitch ones, but very maybe oval process. I I, I forget, but it's it's the glitchier one. But I enjoy it, but I'm crazy, and I know that most people probably did not enjoy that, and that's fine. But maybe they convinced <laughs> themselves it was great. The main thing is that I don't think that section of consumers is necessarily we. You do not need to um, lecture them on here's how to consume things and. and Maybe they were, they're better off now. But the lecture that I give is to people who are in control of their habits, that are active consumers. And uh, people very engaged with different and interesting things and looking for innovation and to stand up for themselves and to call out a lack of innovation where they see it and to not just simply feel like they have to be a optimist about everything. And so I, I do think at the very top, that Vanguard of the ecosystem, of those who can choose to take everyone to a different place and to have listening habits that are not algorithmic, it would be great for them to embrace a non-algorithmic lifestyle and get and to in some ways belittle the algorithmic lifestyle so that more people perhaps start feeling bad about it and and move uh, towards that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, it's it, it's all that's a very elitist take, to be perfectly honest, because it's saying there is some sort of cultural elite and they need to serve as a cultural elite. But that's how the system moves forward. And if we're all going to be passive, it's obviously mm-hmm. going to move towards what the platforms think is best and what companies think is best. And the one thing we had is a countervailing force in culture in for so many years was a deep rejection of commercialism and Mm. supporting big businesses. And if we have completely abandoned that, why is there going to be a countervailing force? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think, honestly, I think there's nothing wrong with revisiting, uh, revisiting the kind of the valency of the idea that selling out is bad. I think that, I think that would be fine. I think it'd be fine if we, if we try to go back to that, at least, (laughs) at least a bit. But it must be so alien to people. I mean, there's, um, because it just there's nothing in the culture that makes sense that failure that failure to find audience is somehow noble mm. uh everything is pointing the other direction yeah and yeah. when i you know like in the 90s i saw a racer head by david lynch right and and i got it from like a um vhs tape a friend had i mean it's it's barely watchable and like you know normal so black dark black and white but it was like even worse on this tape so you're watching it 
And the sense of it is this is an important film you need to watch and everyone has seen it, right? Like you just have this thing in your head that everyone has seen it and you have to also see it uh, as much as you don't want to, but you have to watch it. But now you would know, oh, only like 5,000 people have seen this. I can just ignore it. And so there was this imaginary kind of everyone has done it that gave these things such authority or everyone knows this band. Uh, and now we know for sure that nobody watches these things and listens to them. And so we have no good way of having a non-popular but important sector of culture. Mm. Uh, and critics, if critics don't spend their time championing these these things, there literally is no way for it to be valued. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's true. That's true. And also there's like there's no way for people who don't have a kind of existing stream of income to be making it because yeah, because who has who has who has the time? Unless they're just altruistic, like literally social workers who are like, we are going to live this life of poverty in which order for like, you to which have is slightly like, weird which things. Which is like another thing that I think would be would be really good if like like once upon a time there was like a kind of real sense of like ultra rich people like part of what they how like part of their kind of uh sort of pantomimed largesse was to be kind of patrons of the arts and they don't really do that anymore um they're sort of you know more they're sort of more spending their time kind of setting up <laughs> kind of setting up like kind of anti anti climate change uh sort of think tanks and so on and so forth but like yeah if you like all that like someone like maybe not maybe not Rowling. I feel like she's gone down too far. She's not gone down a, a dark too far down a dark path. But like I don't know. Like name a name a rich person. Name a rich person. My mind's gone blank. George George R R Martin. That's that's the fine. Comes George, that is yeah. such that is such a weird choice. But okay, fine. He should, George he should R R Martin. Fund, he should fund my probably, new metal band. Who's probably really rich. Um. <laughs> should just like i don't know like spend their time uh find like finding like finding like finding really really small obscure obscure bands or like people people write like like still putting fiction on blogs and so on and so forth and be like i'm going to i'm going to give them money i'm going to give them money so that they have time to to make the stuff that they want to make I think that I think that would be good. Bring back like bring back the patronage system. I my my last job was kind of like that in the sense that like the rich guy who ran Dollar Shave Club, the US company that uh David, you'll probably be more probably like be more familiar with than our British listeners, was like the guy who funded like our kind of little men's magazine. Uh but that was up until like the company then got sold to Unilever and Unilever were like why would you want to have a magazine that doesn't make any money and therefore just laid all of us off? Um, you know, and I think that happened again when they got bought and then, you know, similar process. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like, like whatever versions of that did sort of exist. Um, mm. Ultimately, even they kind of have confrontations with like the capital that's bigger than them. And then they're sort of told that like, well, either it serves a political objective or a financial objective, but if it doesn't serve either, then like you shouldn't bother doing it and that's well, this like is how, this is how the, the london review of books is is run mm, yeah it's just it's owned by just this like the by the like the, the trust of this super yeah. rich dame who just thinks it's like important for there to be a culture paper it, it runs at a loss no one cares no one no one's trying to make a profit 
Yeah, and that's fine up, up until like it changes, and like you know, um, I hope that like it doesn't change in the case of a lot of publications. But I think with some, it's like well, once that then transitions to, or like once like those board members are like, uh, we actually want to make money, like, and that's what it becomes, you know. And so it comes back to like what we were talking about to begin with, which was just like, well, if the only language of differentiation is kind of commercial, then you know, no wonder like you sort of find yourself at this point of stasis. Uh, it's it's a little chicken and egg in the sense that I do think having these publications is great. And, and there's so much I know about the world and music in particular because of the Village Voice in New York, which no longer exists, right? So you would just have this free thing you'd pick up every week and, and learn so much about underground culture. And so that's all gone and that, that's too bad. But at the same time, there's websites that do these things, right? And nobody reads them is the problem because most people don't care. And it goes back to the fact that underground culture or rare culture has been devalued by the internet itself. And so the value, I mean, it's one of these things that's hard because no one will tell themselves, oh, you cared about the status value or the cachet of knowing about these weird things. You just liked the weird things. But the, that value, that social value was so implicit in it and so uh, and, and truly valuable for people's lives. They had better lives and better social relationships because of their consumption of this thing, of these things. And they had cooler identities. And so if they're not getting that out of the culture itself, then they're not going to read a media that's going to tell them about that. And I've been thinking a lot about that magazines had that kind of authority. And it's, you know, this is definitely true in Japan, but magazines have an authority to not just say, do you know about the strokes? But to say, oh, you don't know about the strokes? What's wrong with you? Right. So every editorial in a magazine kind of has a normative side to it that made you sit up and think you had to pay attention to it. It wasn't just a suggestion. But that's not really the way that these internet platforms work. They don't have the authority to say this is something you must know. It's just something that exists. And so I don't know, the whole ecosystem at the moment is just making all of this difficult, even if somebody can get the money to make a weird website. And mm. um, the transition of Pitchfork in the last decade from being the, you know, uh, like a comically snobby website about obscure things to now one that more or less is trying to focus on pop music. That's it, that's just what happens, because I don't know if there's an audience to sustain the, the mm. former way it was done. Mm. Yeah. yeah and on that note we should probably wrap up because we have been running slightly over time uh to which i want to say uh dave thank you so much for coming on uh thank you so much for writing your book it was really really good um i definitely encourage people to read it and if people want to read it but if people and if people want to follow like the stuff that you're writing about and thinking about how can they do that yeah thank you so much for having me and uh please get the book status and culture this explains a lot better than i do verbally um, I do a newsletter called Culture and Owner's Manual at culture.ghost.io. Um, it's always great to read web web pages on, uh, verbally. I'm sure you definitely remember it. Um, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all that. Cool. We'll put those all in the show notes. Do check that out. Check out David's newsletter as well. It's like it's. Uh, I, I read a few pieces uh, on my way to Japan. It was very, very good. Um, and thank you for listening to this free episode of 10,000 Posts. We really appreciate it. Uh, we have bonus content on our Patreon. Five bucks a month, you get lots of uh, interviews, uh, film reviews, lots of like other episodes with like cool guests of ours where we talk about like more contentious topics sometimes. Uh, but also, yeah, it's just like a lot more interesting content. And also the support that you give us means that we can keep our show editorially independent. And it also means uh, that we can run it, which like we really like doing. We like running it without ads. And so if you want to keep on listening to a show without ads, 
please do consider supporting if you don't already. Um, I don't have anything to plug, Phoebe. Uh, you've got some stuff to plug, right? I yeah yeah okay. yeah I guess so. Um, also, when you said a lot more interesting content, it makes it sound like it's yeah, more interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of I kind of felt that when I was like, I was like, ah, uh, no, you everything's mean, interesting. Everything additionally, additionally, additionally interesting content. content. Okay, good, yes, good, good. I'm glad, yes. glad, glad, glad I, we got that. I, I've had four tinned. <laughs> coffees today four ten uh, coffees okay right. cool i'm gonna have two more because i need to finish the family mart selection very sorry yes there is you get more additional good content on our patreon Five okay well i was gonna i was gonna say you'll definitely see us next week but i'm not convinced that hussein's <laughs> not gonna die after drinking six of his iced coffees um, <laughs> you, you can subscribe to my Substack, which is phoeberoy.substack.com um you can hear me pod elsewhere uh, at Masters of Our Domain, which is uh, me and Milo Edwards' Seinfeld podcast, and um, at Romecast, which is uh, the show I do with uh, Pat Wyman, and also with my, with with Milo. It's a kind of proliferation of Milo, um, which is about the HBO series Rome, which is available on Bandcamp. Um, <sighs> You can follow my social media if you like. It's I I'm I'm not really I'm not really posting lately unless you want to unless you want to look at my album of the day project which is on Instagram which you can follow at phoebe phoebe underscore rosa underscore holly. I think it's locked at the moment because I got a weird message from somebody. Um, but you can request to follow it and that, that that's fine. This show is produced by Devon. Follow them at Devon underscore on Earth if you don't already. It uh, Also listen to their podcast. It's called Kill James Bond. It's very, very good. Go check that out. Um, and until next time, uh, we will... Ca- yeah, we'll catch you later. So have a good one. Bye. Bye.